How much are our decisions driven by intuition? It seems as though a great deal of thinking isn't really a conscious process of deliberation. It's more like seeing that something is the case than it is like drawing a conclusion from a set of known facts. I play a lot of strategy board games, for example. I do not systematically calculate the odds pertaining to each move, but rather I immediately note the best available options, narrowing the field of contemplation to a simple decision, this or that. If you asked me what I was doing in such a moment, I'd say I'm deciding which of these is the best move. I'm not scanning the entire universe of possibilities, just the ones that stand out as good options. It's like seeing a red pixel on a blue screen. It stands out to me. Nobody with the capacity for color vision struggles with such a task, nor does anyone scan row by row, pixel after blue pixel, until at last a red one is discovered. It's just there. Mind you, a computer program could be designed that would beat me in any strategy game. By calculating the odds of success at every point, it will outperform me. The options which present themselves to me, that I just see there intuitively, may not include the optimum. There are a couple of good options to take, and I decide quickly. It might even be laziness on my part that this is how I operate. I just rely on my senses and my innate intelligence, and I seem to get by that way. Intuition is a kind of perception, it seems to me. The intuition presents as content of consciousness. It's just there. The way that something heard or something seen is just there. I don't hear a set of raw sounds, think them over, and then conclude that it's the creaking of a door or the barking of a dog. I simply hear a creaking door or a barking dog. Obviously, the brain is processing information to a great extent prior to my having access to its result. Understanding language is perhaps the most astonishing example of this. I hear the meaning of speech directly. Moreover, I have an added sense of further meaning which goes beyond the words. I'm not special in this, you do this too. So I have the literal meaning of the sounds translated before I even become conscious of hearing them, and I have a sense of the emotional context of the message and so on. I am the receiver of this. I just perceive how it is. Reasoning, if it occurs at all, seems to occur after the fact. It's as if we have direct experiences, and then we confabulate and rationalize justifications for those experiences. I guess the better we are at getting our justifications right is a matter of wisdom. The more situations of a kind we have found ourselves in, the more honed our intuition becomes. Think of playing an instrument or doing a certain craft. The next step to take is more felt than considered explicitly. If it is the case that intuitions come first, then it should be much harder to understand what is going on in their absence when there is nothing left over but raw observation and reason. This hypothesis is directly opposed to the viewpoint of Plato that pure reason is obfuscated and made weaker by the intrusion of emotions. I suppose I have often seen it that way too. Jonathan Haidt discusses all of this in his book, The Righteous Mind. Haidt brings up research by Antonio Damasio looking at the cognitive capabilities of patients with damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. These patients have almost no emotional responses. I don't have a copy of Damasio's book on hand, so I'll quote from Haidt, who writes, quote, Damasio had noticed an unusual pattern of symptoms in patients who had suffered brain damage to a specific part of the brain, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Their emotionality dropped nearly to zero. They could look at the most joyous or gruesome photographs and feel nothing. They retained full knowledge of what was right and wrong, and they showed no deficits in IQ. 
They even scored well on Kohlberg's tests of moral reasoning. Yet when it came to making decisions in their personal lives and at work, they made foolish decisions or no decisions at all. They alienated their families and their employers, and their lives fell apart. Damasio's interpretation was that gut feelings and bodily reactions were necessary to think rationally, and that one job of the ventromedial PFC was to integrate those gut feelings into a person's conscious deliberations. When you weigh the advantages and disadvantages of murdering your parents, you can't even do it because feelings of horror come rushing in through the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. But Damasio's patients could think about anything with no filtering or coloring from their emotions. With the ventromedial prefrontal cortex shut down, every option at every moment felt as good as any other, unquote. Damasio's interpretation was apparently that our intuitions are necessary to narrow the field of options and facilitate decision-making. This is exactly what I was talking about before when it comes to strategy games. I tend to act pretty quickly when my turn comes around. I'm not indifferent to winning or losing. I'm not taking action just to get my turn out of the way. In fact, I'm having fun. And I'm plenty invested in winning. I make rational decisions aimed at forwarding my objectives, but I do so with the substantial benefit of my intuitions. I see some good options, and I move on the one that I think will secure me the greatest advantage. I rarely make a literal calculation or consider step by step that if I do this, then my opponent will do that, to which I will respond this way, and they will have to do such and such. That kind of deliberation wouldn't be that much fun to me. I mean, such plans are playing out, but largely based upon intuition rather than conscious planning. I'm just having fun trying to win the game. Strategy board games are a good model for how we make decisions because there are stakes, but they aren't so high that we experience fear or pain. I'm leading plastic units into battle to secure points and objectives. I not, might not be such a great leader if the stakes were the death of my men and a lifetime of guilt, but here in the strategy game, we are motivated to win. We have actionable interests, just like in real life. Damasio's patients would be impossible to play with. They probably wouldn't play anyway because they would have no emotional draw to winning or losing, making a move, or wandering out of the game room. But the question is, if they were to play, lacking the feelings of intuition, could they make effective moves or not? Jonathan Haidt writes, quote, Emotions were long thought to be dumb and visceral, but beginning in the 1980s, scientists increasingly recognized that emotions were filled with cognition. Emotions occur in steps, the first of which is to appraise something that just happened based on whether it advanced or hindered your goals. These appraisals are a kind of information processing. They are cognitions. When an appraisal program detects particular input patterns, it launches a set of changes in your brain that prepare you to respond appropriately. For example, if you hear someone running up behind you on a dark street, your fear system detects a threat and triggers your sympathetic nervous system, firing up the fight or flight response, cranking up your heart rate, and widening your pupils to help you take in more information. Emotions are not dumb. Damasio's patients made terrible decisions because they were deprived of emotional input into their decision-making. Emotions are a kind of information processing. Contrasting emotions with cognition is therefore as pointless as contrasting rain with weather or cars with vehicles." Unquote. I'm not exactly sure if I agree with the characterization that emotions are a kind of information processing, but I'm open to the idea. I think about consciousness, about the phenomenal content of experience. Emotions, it seems to me, are perceptions. They are what we feel. No doubt these feelings result from a lot of neural processing, which I will even qualify as cognitions if that is how Haidt wants to do it. 
But like other perceptions, it is the result of the processing which presents us with content. We get the result. For the sake of the present discussion, let's stick to the kinds of emotions that might easily be regarded as intuitions, feelings of valuation which guide our decisions. These feelings draw us toward or away from different choices. Hypothetically, then, having made the choice, if we were to ask to explain it, we are essentially confabulating an answer. I'm not saying that our explanation is wrong. Maybe it is and maybe it's not. But we do not have direct access to the processes that led us to the decision. Rather, we acted on intuition. If intuition is an emotional kind of perception, which results like other perceptions from a large quantity of neural data analysis, then it could shed light on certain kinds of neurological dysfunction. Consider facial anosia, in which a patient following a stroke, for example, loses the capacity to recognize familiar people by their face. The patient can see the nose, the eyes, the hair, the chin, and everything else. So they have the visual data presented to them in all the vividness of any other thing they lay their eyes upon. They have no problem describing the face in detail. They simply lack the feeling of recognition for a particular face. In his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, Oliver Sacks describes such a patient, Dr. P, with anosia for faces. Presented in the clinic with a movie, Dr. P could not identify the actors or their expressions, so Sacks showed him a series of photographs of people directly familiar to him. Sacks wrote, quote, On the walls of his apartment, there were photographs of his family, his colleagues, his pupils, himself. I gathered a pile of these together and with some misgivings presented them to him. What had been funny or farcical in relation to the movie was tragic in relation to real life. By and large, he recognized nobody, neither his family, nor his colleagues, nor his pupils, nor himself. He recognized a portrait of Einstein because he picked up the characteristic hair and mustache. And the same thing happened with one or two other people. Ach, Paul, he said when shown a portrait of his brother. That square jaw, those big teeth, I would know Paul anywhere. But was it Paul he recognized, or one or two of his features, on the basis of which he could make a reasonable guess as to the subject's identity? In the absence of obvious markers, he was utterly lost. But it was not merely the cognition, the gnosis, at fault. There was something radically wrong with the whole way he proceeded. For he approached these faces, even of those near and dear, as if they were abstract puzzles or tests. He did not relate to them. He did not behold." Unquote. I've shared that section on this podcast before, but now we can look upon it with a new vantage point. Perhaps what we call intuition is common to perceptive and cognitive contents in consciousness, and it is such an ever-present precondition of conscious contents that we have failed to recognize it as such. In the case of visual anosia, the deficit is particular to facial recognition, and we have learned that there's an area in the cortex, different, by the way, from Damasio's area, that is necessary for facial recognition. Like what I have described regarding strategy games, recognizing a familiar face just happens. I look across the table, over the board and the dice and the empty beer bottles, and I see Brian. I do not see a man with certain features and infer that it is Brian. There is a recognition, an immediate known, like the red pixel in the field of blue. Suppose you were to interview me and ask me how it is that I know I am looking at Brian. I could throw up a list of physical characteristics. I could appeal to episodic memory that I know it's Brian because I came over to Brian's house to play board games, so naturally it must be Brian. I could appeal to the context, this is Brian's house. But all of that is throwing dog shit at the wall. The truth is, I know that it is Brian the same way that I know anything else. This is just the way the world presents to me. 
I know it because I know it. It's just intuition, automatic, innate, and given, to the point of an axiom. What I can say for sure is that I do not recognize my friend by some step-by-step cognitive process of deduction. There is no reasoning in the equation, at least not by me. If algorithms have been employed or line-by-line rules or logical steps have been carried out, they have not been carried out by me. They have been carried out unconsciously somewhere in the brain that is not mine to dabble with. What would happen if I were to suddenly lose this sense of familiarity to my friend? What if every representation of Brian in my nervous system were disconnected from my visual perceptions? Well, we have another neurological condition which will shed light on this question. It's called Kopgras syndrome. A review by Kaushal Shah, Shailesh Jain, and Rupma Wadwa describes it this way, quote, Kopgras syndrome, or delusion of doubles, is a delusional misidentification syndrome. It is a syndrome characterized by a false belief that an identical duplicate has replaced someone significant to the patient. In Kopgras syndrome, the imposter can also replace an inanimate object or an animal. Contrary to the earlier belief that Kopgras syndrome mainly affects women, it occurs in both genders. It is widely regarded as the most prevalent of the delusional misidentification syndromes and appears in psychiatric and non-psychiatric cases, including patients with brain damage. Brain damage in the bifrontal, right limbic, and temporal regions can cause Kapgras syndrome. This brain damage leads to aberrant memory functions, self-monitoring, and reality perception. Such neurophysiological deficits cause an inability to integrate emotional information processing and facial recognition correctly. Besides schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorders, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, Lewy body dementia, epilepsy, cerebrovascular accident, pituitary tumors, and advanced Parkinson's disease patients can experience Capgras syndrome, unquote. So what would happen if I lost my sense of familiarity to my friend? As a result of some brain injury or psychiatric breakdown, I might insist that this is not, after all, my friend Brian, but a clever replacement. Phenomenologically, what is going on? How could a person who looks like Brian and acts like Brian, sitting across a table in Brian's house, not be Brian? Well, if this were a matter of reasoning, I would never notice, would I? Yet now, with the sudden onset of Capgras syndrome, I insist I know with absolute certainty that this is not he. A familiar feeling of knowing would be present if this were Brian. A feeling so subtle that I never even noticed it until it was gone. Moreover, people with this neurological condition are prone to violence. So I'm so certain, it is so plain to me, that I must murder the imposter. I must mash his phony head in with a claw hammer, crying, What have you done with Brian, you son of a bitch? And what do people with Copgrass syndrome say when they're asked about the imposter in their life? Well, they confabulate an explanation, of course. The imposter is a foreign spy, or a space alien, or a man who murdered her real husband in order to replace him. This is exactly what we do when we have an intuition. We accept the feeling as real and then rationalize its justification. These cases show that there are many different mechanisms for disentangling our intuitions from our reasoning. Far from feeling, from freeing us up to think clearly and behave rationally, the loss or alteration of intuitive senses leads to nonsensical behavior or a lack of making decisions altogether. Jonathan Haidt has proposed an analogy for the relationship between our conscious processes, which reason why, and our emotional processes, which simply see that, both understood as cognitive in nature. He calls these the elephant and its rider. 
The elephant is the unconscious and the rider its conscious mind. They've evolved to serve its, its purposes. Height writes, quote, in the happiness hypothesis, I called these two kinds of cognition, the rider and the elephant. I chose an elephant rather than a horse because elephants are so much bigger and smarter than horses. Automatic processes run the human mind just as they've been running animal minds for 500 million years, so they're very good at what they do, like software that has been improved through thousands of product cycles. When human beings evolved the capacity for language and reasoning at some point in the last million years, the brain did not rewire itself to hand over the reins to a new and inexperienced charioteer. Rather, the rider evolved because it did something useful for the elephant. The rider can do several useful things. It can see further into the future, and therefore can help the elephant make better decisions in the present. It can learn new skills and master new technologies, which can be deployed to help the elephant reach its goals and sidestep disasters. And most important, the rider acts as a spokesman for the elephant, even though it doesn't necessarily know what the elephant is really thinking. The rider is skilled at fabricating post hoc explanations for whatever the elephant has just done, and it is good at finding reasons to justify whatever the elephant wants to do next." Unquote. Height is not explicitly making the divide between consciousness and non-consciousness here. I prefer to think of psychology in those terms. To my thinking, in my own version of the elephant and rider, the rider is the conscious mind. The rider is you or me, and the elephant is our organism. And just like in Height's analysis, we riders are not privy to what goes on outside of our own contents. They come in the form of thoughts and feelings, sensations and sounds, motivations and pleasures and pains. We can only infer what is really going on with the elephant. Nevertheless, we confidently hold court like the president's press secretary spewing justifications and falsehoods to the media in defense of our irrational policies. It's entirely conceivable that a fast-learning AI would be capable of dominating strategy board games just as they can be made to dominate chess. The best way for an AI to beat us at pretty much anything is hinted at by the techniques of stage magic. Mislead the elephant. Throw the intuitions off the trail. One thing about even the best of magic tricks is that the way they are accomplished is generally much more mundane than we would imagine. We are fooled because our intuitions totally mislead us. This is what the magician studies and gains mastery over, our intuitions. As I said before, when I play strategy games, the best options available tend to just appear in front of me. That's the elephant at work, just presenting me with choices that feel right. Then I, the rider, give them a quick looking over and make my favorite selection, this or that. The brilliance of the stage magician is that this same process is hacked and undermined. The elephant tells me the card or the ball or the voluptuous assistant is either here or there. I could make a guess, this or that, but I'd be wrong on both accounts, and the magician knows it.